little cartoon for you uh, as we begin our time together. I don't like to complain. I bought this box of cereal yesterday, and it said there was a surprise inside. So, there's nothing in it that's the surprise. It may be that for many of us, we feel life has let us down. We feel that we've been sold or believed something, and when we opened the box, it wasn't what we thought. Maybe we feel that about Christianity. Maybe we just feel that. Maybe we didn't kind of voice it, but it's underneath. Disappointment is part of life. We're going to look at how a particular moment, that disappointment is expressed in the book of Ezra. Before we do that, we're going to give a little bit of context and a little bit of other stuff, and then we're going to hone in on this idea of disillusionment. If you've been with us, you'll know that Ezra was a book written hundreds of years ago. It was written to people who had uh, been in exile. They had come from Jerusalem, or their parents had come from Jerusalem, and they had been forcibly moved away, and the city had been ransacked, the walls had been broken down, and the temple, which was beloved to them and significant symbol of God's care and promise to them, had been destroyed. And in previous weeks, we talked and looked at how they began begin to return to fulfill God's word and how God moved some of them to come back uh, and to rebuild the temple. The book is called Ezra, but Ezra doesn't appear for a few more chapters yet. And there are various things that we've looked at about how they come from different backgrounds with one purpose. And the first thing they do, which we looked at last week, is to, to just start with an altar. They've got no walls, they've got no roof, but they start with a place of worship. And this was despite their fear. And that was a major thing that we looked at in our last session. So you can find all of that. So let's pick up the rest of Ezra 3. They gave their money to the masons and the carpenters. Uh, these are uh, tradesmen. These are not people with peculiar handshakes. These are uh, stonemasons and carpenters. And they gave money and they had to buy the wood uh, from quite a distance away. So they had to use quite a lot of money. They had to pay for all of this. They employed people to do it. So it's just a little aside because occasionally um, I come across folks who are a little bit concerned that as a church we employ quite a number of people. We have 13 members of staff full and part-time at the moment. Some people question why we do that. And in part, we do it for the same principle that was going on here, that they needed certain skills. They needed people who uh, were skilled carpenters and skilled uh, building masons. Uh, they needed the resources. And these people couldn't do that after work. They couldn't do that in their spare time because it would have taken centuries to build the temple. So they had to say, look, the, the, the work that needs doing with the particular skills you've got and the particular time commitment that we need, we're going to give you money so that you are uh, able to eat and you're able to have a roof over your head and you're able to have clothes on your back and provide for your children. And we want to, to, to employ you to come and build our temple. And the same principle applies for us, that there are things, most of us are busy through nine to five. We can't start church at half past seven on a weeknight. And a lot of the things that those of us that are paid by the staff do require a lot of daytime preparation. Some of it requires particular skills and qualifications. 
And so we invite each other to uh, support one or two of us and to set the side. We talked about that a lot more a few weeks ago, and forgive me if um, we're talking about these things again, but the way I've really prefer to teach the Bible and wasn't able to do very much during lockdown is just to go verse by verse through the Bible and go Old Testament, New Testament in rotation. This is where we are in, um, in the Old Testament in Ezra. And you'll see that it, it wasn't a cheap thing. We looked at our, the time before at the offerings and they were quite extensive. And so I'm going to ask just a couple of questions just to remind us about this subject and, and just to say, look, it, those of us that work, or those of us that have an income, there's a question to be asked as to where are we supporting Christian ministry because we don't have the time to do it. That may be our church, it may be another church, it may be in mission. We put up this before the, slide, before the service, this slide comes around, different ways in which you can give. Uh, if you feel... Our church is the, the thing you want to do. To, if you're able to do that uh, through your bank, it is the best way. So they go on and they, they say they appointed uh, the Levites 20 years and older to supervise the building of the house. And I, I, it really struck me that they, it specified that these folks were 20 years and older. That's significant because it was a big job. But they were saying, look, if you're 20, you can start on this. And this has been a real principle for us as a leadership at this particular church over the last uh, five years is to really invest in younger leaders and to make sure that we are preparing the church for future generations. Now, younger leaders may not be as good, gifted and as experienced as older leaders. They may make mistakes, but it needs to be something we proactively do. And so it, it was a bit of an encouragement to me that this is here. We want our church to be all ages. That's a really important principle for us. But to be all ages, we have to work harder with younger people because younger people feel, I'm not good enough. And younger folks will tend to feel somebody else does it better. And actually, we want to be developing one another. So my second question for us to reflect on is, where are you and I encouraging younger leaders? In other words, where are we alongside or just cheering somebody on who's starting out, who's having a go, who's learning how to do things? How are we encouraging younger leaders? And note that they were supervising. And he goes on to talk more about this idea of supervising. And uh, I wanted just to draw attention to that for a moment too, this idea that they needed supervising. And they weren't just told to get on with it and do whatever they wanted. There was a re an encouragement to receive supervision. And I don't know how popular it is, the idea that we need someone to check that we're doing it right. That this sense of accountability becomes an incentive. I want to do my service for Jesus to the best of my ability, and there's somebody supervising, somebody checking, somebody asking the questions. And I want to suggest that it's good for all of us to have someone, maybe one, maybe two people, who we just invite them and give permission to them to ask us questions about our work for Jesus 
are we doing the right thing? Are we doing all that we can? Are we using our skills, our gifts, our resources? Maybe a partner in life. It may be a, a family member. It may be a, a friend that we've known for many years. I wouldn't suggest loads of people. I would suggest maybe one person. And we then also receive support. And it needs to be invited. You know, we all want to tell other people they're doing the wrong thing. It tends not to be very helpful or productive. I don't go around telling everybody to do the wrong things. There are some people in church life that I do supervise but it's an agreed relationship and, stru and structure that we go into from the, from the outset. Accountability is best invited, not demanded. It doesn't work if it, the individual doesn't want to do it. it. It's not to be resented that every one of us has someone who's a little bit further ahead who's saying, how's your prayer life going? How's your thought life going? How's your use of money going? How's your use of time going? And that we allow someone to lead us forward. To disciple us, perhaps, is a word you might want to use. So, who supervises our faith is a third question. But I want now to get into the real meat of the next part of the passage and to go back to my cereal uh, box. There was nothing in it. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, so they've, they've, they've built the altar, remember, now they're building the first foundation. They're digging a hole, they're building a foundation. The Levites uh, came with symbols and took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. This is Ezra 3 and verse 10. So they come uh, and they give thanks because the foundation is celebrated. And last Sunday night in Questions of Life, we were talking about joy. And one of the things I said is that uh, I think one of the keys to joy is wanting the same things that God wants, is partnering with what he's doing, is looking for what he is at work in. And they were celebrating because they had God's heart that it was good. And so maybe a question on the back of last week, you can go back and find that again on our website if you want to look at it. Uh, what work of God for others are we celebrating? But I want to talk a little bit more about this celebration because they declared this phrase that we use in our opening worship. He is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. Now, sometimes there's a little bit of a theological debate and there's certainly a debate between Christianity and some of the other major religions as to whether you define God as good, meaning goodness is an external value that describes what God is, or whether you describe goodness by what God is. Why on earth are we talking about that? I want to suggest very strongly that God is defined by goodness. There is an external value of what is good, and God matches that. And that's important in a moment. I'll explain why. Because it means that it's not simply that we say that, uh, that goodness is the things that God does. Because that, what happens is that when bad things happen in the world, religions divide 
over whether they say it's, it's God's will, so it's really good even though it looks bad, or whether they say it can't be God doing it because it's not good. And as I understand the, the, the Bible and the way it talks about Satan, where it's, the way it talks about the rulers of this world and this age, the way it talks about the, the, the existence of a, a kingdom of darkness that is not of God, that clearly there are things happening in our world that are not what God wants. They are not good. The murder of children is not good, so it can't be God doing it. Where sometimes there are other expressions of religion that, that kind of convolute and say, well, no, it, it's just that we don't see why it is good. It's important to say that good things are from God and things that are bad are not from God. And the reason why I think this is important to understand from these kind of verses is this idea, as I said earlier, that is repeated again and again, that goodness is always put next to because his love endures forever. Well, not always, but on 11 occasions. He is good because his love endures forever. In other words, he is good because he is loving. And again, you don't define love by what God is. You define God by love. The word good has many meanings. This is G.K. Cheston. For example, if a man were to shoot his grandmother at a range of 500 yards, I should call him a good shot, but not necessarily a good man. What do we mean when we say God is good and his love endures forever? Well, there's a description of love in 1 Corinthians 13, and I think it gives us a fairly helpful understanding. of This is the definition of who God is. God is love, John tells us. And we're familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, but what does it tell us about the goodness of God? The goodness of God is that he is patient. He is slow to anger. He is not easily angered. The definition of God, uh, which matches all of this, which comes in, uh, in, in Exodus at the very beginning, is he's slow to anger. God is good because he, his love endures. He waits for us. He is longing for us to come to him. And he is merciful and gracious and compassionate. He keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. And God is the same. Always trusts, always hopes. God is truthful. He is good because he is truthful. He is good because he is pure. His motives are not one of envy or boasting or trying to um, promote himself. God is good. And he is just. He wants the, what is fair and right for all people. He is against the oppression and exploitation of people. He does not delight in evil. And he causes no harm. And that's important. Because when we sit alongside those who've experienced harm, and we're going to see in a moment that there are people here who had in this story who had experienced harm, That was not good. Because it was not good, it's not from God. Because God seeks to cause no harm, to protect, and he is faithful. He always perseveres. Love never fails. 
And we read this in verse 12. Many of the older priests and the Levites and the family whose heads who had seen the former temple. So these are people maybe who as children had been part of the temple or, or maybe young adults and they had been exiled for 30 or 40 years or whatever it was. They wept aloud when they saw the foundations being laid. And this really interested me. Why were they weeping? Why were they crying out while others were shouting for joy? So there's this mixed thing going on. There's people sobbing really, really, really loudly. They are crying really loudly. And there are people, other people who are uh, shouting with joy. And, And sometimes I think one of the good things about our church is that we can hold those two things together. We don't expect everyone to shout for joy. But we allow people to weep and cry at the same time. But I'm really interested as to why these people were crying and why they were weeping so loudly at this moment. And it's important to notice these were the people who'd seen the suffering. They would have seen their parents' generation being murdered. They would have seen atrocities and, and, uh, if you remember Boney M, (laughs) by the rivers of Babylon we sat down and there we remembered Zion and we wept. These are these people These are people who have seen everything they stood for wiped out. The temple, as I spoke for before, represented God's presence. It represented the idea that they were a special people, chosen and loved by God who would never forsake them. And it had been destroyed and ransacked. And they are weeping because they are remembering all of those things. Linus, a little cartoon. Linus uh, is praying And uh, he says to his sister, I think I've made a new theological discovery. What is it, she says, if you hold your hands upside down, you get the opposite of what you pray for. Now, that is not true. But I often encounter people who feel God is doing the opposite of what they're asking. And these people would have cried out to God, save the temple. And it was destroyed. And they come back and they can't dance for joy. They weep with sadness. Why? Maybe because finally their prayers had been answered. Again and again in the Bible, we read of answered prayer delayed by decades. And I don't think we can cope with that in the West because we've got a microwave system where we press the button and 30 seconds later, God does the healing. And they had cried out for decades. And now I think they wept because it was a sense of, oh, it's happened at last. It has happened at last. And some of us are praying and praying and praying for something. And we stand with these folks and say, it will happen may not be in our lifetime. See, they talk about their parents who wouldn't see this. In heaven, we know that we will see the fruit and the answers to our prayers. We know that the healings we've longed for and the hurt we desperate for God to bring about, uh, to heal, will be healed. But they wept because their prayer had been answered. And I wonder what 
answered prayer is moving us? What have we forgotten that we prayed for? What is it that we not that we pray for day and night? Some other reasons why I think they wept. Their hope had been fulfilled. It had been answered. All that their trust in Jesus was coming true. The future belongs to those who wait. This is William Willimon. He's a great uh, writer. Um, I love a lot of his quotes. The future belongs to those who wait. For those who know we are meant for something better, the present darkness is not our final destination. We do not put our hope in God sorting it tonight. We put our hope in God sorting it forever. And they wept because they saw it. And I wonder too as they wept because there were memories that God was healing. And some of us will have very deep and traumatic memories of things that have gone wrong and happened. And it's painful. And the process of healing isn't short or quick or easy. But tears are a part of the healing and facing it and expressing it is okay and good. And maybe we stand with those who weep at times. There's no indication that they were told to shut up crying. They just let it out. They wailed. And I think that was part of the healing. The lament, the mourning and the joy. And they held these two things together and it was loud. I think they wept because their shame had been cleansed. Because the temple had been ransacked because of the idolatry of their nation. Because the way people had assumed that God could be treated like an idiot. And just picked up and put down whenever they wanted. And God said, I can't do this. If you don't follow me and me alone, see what the gods you follow do for you. And I think there was a weeping because they felt the forgiveness of God. They'd allowed the temple to be destroyed for the, through their sin. And now God was restoring it. And we believe in a God who takes our shame and our guilt and he restores and he heals and he brings new life. He washes it away. He cleanses them. Many of us carry shame and God wants to wash that clean. I think they wept because their faith was rekindled. And they had probably doubted. They had probably felt the ceiling was holding their prayers. They had prayed and prayed and prayed. And, 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 and maybe that moment when the, 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 the temple was destroyed, they had felt, where are you, God? That's it. And many of us will have those moments where we go, God, you weren't supposed to let that happen. And we think, God, are you good? But they had proclaimed together, God is good. And I think that's because they had an understanding that it was was God who had brought them back. It was God who had restored them, but it was their own sin that had caused it. Now, some people would say, well, there was a language of punishment. And uh, we, we can debate this. We looked at this before in different places. I think the overriding thing is that they, they pushed God out and the consequence of that was that another nation took over. But here is their faith rekindled. 
Here is the evidence that God has not abandoned them, and perhaps that's why they wept. That they thought they were finished with. They thought that it was over. They thought they were of no value. And God has given them a new chance. And I believe that can be our story too. And perhaps they wept because they just felt the joy of God. And there'll be all kinds of reasons why we struggle and we've wondered whether God is good. We wonder where he is. We wonder what is going on. And we've lost hope and we say there was nothing in the box. It didn't, expect, it didn't provide what we expected. Snoopy says everyone needs to have hope. Sometimes it's only a little thing that gives us hope. A smile from a friend or a song or a sight of a bird soaring high above the trees. So much for hope, he says. We don't put our hope in things. They put their hope in other gods, and those gods had failed them. We're to put our hope in Jesus. Whatever it is we're waiting for God to do, whatever prayers it is we're crying out for, whatever tears we're shedding, we put our hope in him and we wait. Familiar Psalm 40, we waited patiently for the Lord. And we cling on to this truth that God is good. And though we don't see it, we won't redefine goodness. We will wait for deliverance. So what prayer are we inspired to keep praying? Lord, we bring you our thankfulness for the prayers we've seen answered and we bring you our hope for the things as yet unanswered. We thank you that you have been with us throughout the last few months. And we ask you to restore all that has been lost. We ask you to rebuild. We ask you to cleanse. We ask you to heal. Never once did we ever walk alone. Never once did you leave us on your own. So do you want to go in at the deep end, or do you want to start off with saying a bit something? Well, time-wise, let's go in at the deep end. Go in at the deep end, right. Um, so God is good, and nothing bad comes from him. How does that fit in with him dis disciplining his children? Uh, he promised bring, to bring disaster on Israel uh, if they weren't faithful. And that is what happened. How does that fit with God only being good? Well, this is where you... you <laughs> it's a deep end. Okay, so <laughs> you, you, you are always, to me, trying to balance in Scripture where there are things that look like they contradict. And you're trying to harmonise, and you read things through one set of lenses or another. I choose to interpret the Bible through one significant lens which is Jesus, and in particular the cross. And the second lens is the description of God from to Moses, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. So when I read verses that, that like you've just quoted there, I think, okay, that's in the same place as those other, ver other, other things, so how do you harmonize those? You can either say that what we are seeing on the cross in Jesus isn't really who God is, mm. which I don't think is true at all. 
Or you can say, how I hear those words in the Old Testament is not exactly what they meant. Mm. And I think that what you're often getting is the people crying out that this is what they felt. Mm. It's their lament. They were abandoned and they were warned that if they worshipped other gods, those gods would not save them. And they were told again and again that if they repented, that God would save them. They had every opportunity to choose God and they didn't. Mm. And there are times when they cried out because I think it felt like God was punishing them. Mm. But I think there are enough places in the rest of the Bible where it was clear it was their own fault. Mm. The discipline that God brings as a, a loving father is a different thing. Yeah. There is a time where he says, there are, if you do that, there is a consequence that is painful for you and that will help you realize that's the wrong thing. Mm. And, but that is not the, the murder of babies, mm. which is what they had seen. It may be that if in arrogance I try and lead the church without listening to God, God will say, okay, you're going to find you're going to fall fat on your face and the sermons aren't going to work and people aren't going to come. Mm. That's the discipline of God. Mm. The destruction of human life, I don't think was the discipline of God. I think it was the consequence of their rebellion. Mm. It was their fault. And if they had repented, he would have saved them. And that is, I think, true for us. If we repent, God saves us. Now, I'm fully aware that, that, you know, that other Christians would see things differently. Mm. But that's the reason I see it that way. And, I, and, and again, I go back to, because you define God as good, not good as what God does. Mm. Because then you get into all sorts of semantics where you say the destruction of babies is good, really. Mm. You can't, and that, it gets all very complicated. It's undoubtedly clear that in the Old Testament, they cried out that they had been punished. Mm. It was their fault. They could have repented. They should have repented. I preached, I think it's still available on our podcast. I preached all the way through Kings, and we looked at it again and again. And the word if, 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 one of the most famous verses in Chronicles, if my people humble themselves and pray, I will hear from heaven. That was one of the contexts of, these, of this story. Mm. If, 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 and they didn't. And he said, if you follow these gods which are wooden and don't really work, they will destroy you. And they did. Mm. The, sorry, one more final thing. I think the discipline was that God removed himself from the temple mm -hmm. so that they wouldn't, he, he just wasn't there. And as it, because he wasn't there, it got destroyed. That was the discipline. It was not the destruction of babies and, and the murder and the, the genocide that occurred at that time. Mm. And then in a similar vein, sorry. It's all right. into my head. The, the person who says, you know, God's bought COVID because we need to be taught a lesson as a, as a society, as a world. Yeah. In a, in a similar vein, you know, what... what what do we say to those people? <laughs> or what, what would you say to what would, uh, What I would say is that again and again in the Bible, 
it is clear that bad things happen to good people. The whole story of Job and Job's comforters, and Dan's going to preach on this in a few weeks' time, they come and they say, you've done something wrong, so you need to repent. And actually, we know that Job was suffering because of a demonic attack, because of Satan. And he hadn't done anything wrong. So two, two really things, important things I would say. We believe in a day of judgment. We believe that Jesus will return and put everything right and he will judge and punish what is wrong. And therefore, that is when there will be judgment. And Peter tells us that, 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 that God is patient, waiting for us to repent, but he will come. Mm. So I, uh, the things that go wrong in this world are not God choosing to punish indiscriminately in some crazy way that affects the old or the elderly or... or, or yeah, yeah. That's not good. I think that our world is, is in darkness. It's not a king, this is not the kingdom of heaven. This is not what God wants. There is destruction and, and death. And COVID is not what God wants. You could argue that it may or may not be the consequence of us in, uh, and, and what we've done to the environment. I doubt it. There's been plagues every 100 years for the, the last 5,000 years. It just happens. Mm. I don't think God sent COVID. I do think we can learn. Mm. I do think there's masses of things. And I think that God is always the God who, who, who takes things that are wrong and says, we can learn out of this. We can um, be, uh, we can uh, get, uh, there's good things that come out of it. Romans 8 says that God works together for good he brings good for those who love him. He works all things for good. Mm. Uh, I know other Christians take a different point of view, and, and I'm now I'm going I put myself right in the firing line again. It's just my understanding mm. because it makes sense of the cross and it makes sense of who God is, mm. that, that God is good. Therefore, everything that isn't good isn't God. Mm. And it's not like the Bible doesn't tell us there's a Satan. Mm. It's not like the Bible doesn't tell us that there's a two kingdoms that are at war it's not like the god doesn't tell us the bible doesn't tell us who's going to win we pray thy kingdom come because the kingdom of god hasn't yet come because why hasn't the kingdom of god yet come because there is a kingdom of darkness that's what we're fighting therefore the bad things to me are from the kingdom of darkness mm. sorry no no it's <laughs> fantastic um it's an opinion mm. that other people take different views yeah yeah oh great so then two questions which I assume are kind of in and around 1 Corinthians 13 and just a few of the sort of statements in, in there. Um, love keeps no record of wrongs. If we don't pull up others on the things that they do that are wrong, how do we make sure that things are done well? How do we also protect others from neglectful, unhelpful, harmful leadership? Okay, so... Uh I think, it, I think fundamentally the work of conviction is, is God's Holy Spirit. It's what goes on in the heart. That if, if I am doing wrong, God's Spirit needs, will, will, will correct me. And if I refuse to listen to God's Spirit, then no matter of words or anybody else are going to change me. I think fundamentally God wants to correct us through our openness to Scripture and we are much more correctable when we invite 
people to correct us. It, if I try to correct someone who does not believe they want my correction, they're not going to get corrected. They're going to be stubborn, and they're going to be hurt or angry, or how dare you tell me to do that. If I want a person to change, I need to pray for them, and I need to be available if they ask me for help. Now, within that, there are some big boundaries. <laughs> and clearly, if someone is abusing or hurting or severely damaging someone, we have to intervene and we have to protect and we have to save somebody. Uh, so there's a danger in what I said could be... A, if you take it to the extreme, it doesn't work. I'm talking about in general discipleship. I'm not talking about law-breaking. I'm not talking about really serious sin. I do supervise people in the church because there's a contract. And they come into the employment of the church knowing that I'm going to supervise. I'm supervise you. We meet. And uh, you have invited that, I hope. Yes? Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, but I don't supervise people who haven't invited that. Mm. Uh, because it fundamentally doesn't work. Mm. Because their heart isn't saying, I want to grow. Mm. And as much as I would love people to grow, if they're choosing, goes back to this rebellion thing, if they're choosing not to submit to somebody, then I can shout all I like. Mm. I'm not going to change things. There may be things where we say, if you carry on doing that, you can't be part of for our church, that's an extreme situation, but mm. we have done that. Mm. I have said in, in occasions, you are not safe to be in our, in our activities. So there are boundaries. Mm. I, does that make sense? That's great, yeah, yeah. I think that's good. The, ne the, the next one was just love always protects. So somebody, I imagine, praying for God's protection against COVID or praying for the family's protection against something like COVID and then... Um, somebody gets ill, or if, if, if God is love, love always protects. How yeah. do those two things work in, in relationship? I think this is the pain of the, the, the thing. And, and, you know, they would have prayed that, and God, their parents perhaps were killed. Some of those folks may have been orphans. We, we talk about this again and again. I fundamentally believe if this life is all there is, and if this moment is all we've got then God has let us down. I believe in the goodness of God that in heaven there will be a healing and a restoration. And I may not be protected from COVID and I may go to heaven earlier than the people around me want. And if I go to heaven earlier than the people around me want... I trust because God is good that when I've been there and reunited with them... And I say this all the time, don't I? For 10, 30, 40, 50, 60,000 years, 40 years here, it doesn't hurt as much. It hurts now, but it won't hurt in heaven. And, and the only way I can deal with all of this is my complete conviction in God's offer of eternal life. It just doesn't work without that. And so these guys wept because they were separated from their parents for 40 years, but they will be in heaven. 
and they will be with their parents and it will be okay. And, you know, my, my favorite quote is the quote of Thomas More. Uh, Earth has no hurt that heaven cannot heal. And, and when we've been there, the song, the song 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, then 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, ultimately was the longest time in this book. It's healed. So how do I say God, why do I pray for God's protection? Always pray, always ask for God's healing, always ask for God's protection. And whether I see it in this lifetime or the next, he will preserve my soul. The final thing is that I've just done John, uh, the next bit in John's study where he talks about nothing can snatch us out of his hand. And that's what I would go, my ultimate protection is whatever hell throws at me, when I put myself in the arms of Jesus, nothing can, take, can rob me of heaven. Nothing can rob me of that. And I am protected. And my body is going to fail. It is going to wear out. I know it doesn't look like it's wearing out, but it will pack up. And I will be protected because I will be with Jesus forever. And if we don't have a hope of eternal life, these scriptures don't work. Sorry. That's great. We've got some questions floating. We're not going to get through all of them. I do apologise. Um, so, lastly, or second to last, depending on how we're doing for time. What about the person? So you spoke at the end about um, feeling a cleansing from the shame of rebelling against God, and, and they wept. What do you say to the person who says, "Well, what I've done is God can't forgive that. That's too. I feel too ashamed." Um, God isn't going to f forgive that. I can't be cleansed of that, mm. essentially, I think. I think one of the most significant people in the New Testament is Paul. Mm. We know that he participated in murder. The most significant people in the Old Testament is Moses. We know that he murdered someone with his bare hands. One of the most people that's called the most righteous in the Bible is David, we know that he was unfaithful, committed adultery, and murdered the husband of the woman he committed adultery with. We know that Peter, well, a big thing that he would never let Jesus down, and he denied him, and he became the leader of the church. God, there is, <laughs> whatever we feel ashamed of, the folks who become the pillars of the Bible have done equal or worse. The good news is God is good and his goodness is that he wants to restore. He's desperate to restore. He's so desperate to restore, he comes and, and dies on a cross for us because he wants to restore. That is no light thing. It's no easy thing. It was a humiliating and painful and horrible thing that took 33 years of preparation, knowing all the time he was going to go to it. He cries uh, blood and tears the night before. It is a horrific thing. He doesn't do that to say, actually, I wanted to punish them all along. Mm. He does it because he wants to save. He comes to seek and to save the lost. And if we feel ashamed, we're lost. And the good news is that's, we are the very people he's come for. And when religion makes out that it's for good people, we've lost the whole thing. He comes to save. 
He's come to save. Mm. Now, if we don't need saving, then, then, then we don't need him. But we need saving. Mm. So uh, don't worry. There's no shame that he can't cleanse. Mm. Nothing. He says, as far as the east is from the west, he removes our sins. Mm. Fantastic. In relation to, I think, second question, um, talking about whether God punishes, somebody's just sent in to coin a phrase, we are not punished for our sins, we are punished by our sins. That's good. Quite a helpful yep. way of yep. looking at it. Uh, lastly, just at the very beginning, you talked a little bit about, about giving, and I'm uh, just interested to know, and this is going right the way back to the beginning, but just really quickly, how do we know what to give our money to? Because I think there is so much stuff that we can give our money to. And what's the right thing to give our money to? And where do we, where do we put it? Well, <laughs> I may have been slightly biased on this. <laughs> <laughs> I may need to declare an interest. Mm. I fundamentally think we should give our money to two things. We should give our money to the, the building of God's kingdom, mm. i.e. a church. If whatever church we go to, <laughs> let's put it that way. To be part of that church is to carry the weight of what we do, mm. the light, all of this. And the second thing is I think we should give to the poor. As a church, we give to the poor, but I think I would ideally say you do both. Mm. As you start to build, give to the kingdom of God, once you're giving to the local thing that you're part of, I think it's good to have mission people that you support. Mm. And I think that's where things are on your heart and, and a particular country or a particular place or a particular individual, you just say, I wanna, I wanna help them in their ministry and I believe in it. Mm. But I, I don't think you do that before, I know I'm biased, so ignore this, mm. I don't think you do that before church. Mm. You, you give to the thing you're committed to, and then you give to others. And then I think you're giving to the poor, you, you choose agencies that work with the poor, and you get involved with real life poor people that you give to anonymously and quietly. Mm. And you do both of those two things. So those would be, that would be work. But I am biased. Mm. because I'm biased. Cool. I think we'll leave it there. Okay. That all right? Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, we'll, we'll, I think we'll just close there. Would you like to pray for us? Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great. Yeah, Lord, thank you that you are good. Thank you that we can completely trust you and that you want good, good things for our lives. Pray for yeah each of us now as we go out into this week. I pray that we would see your goodness all around us this week. Pray that you would open our eyes to the good things that you are doing. Lord, I pray if there's any of us here tonight that just feel, yeah, we've struggled to see your goodness. We've struggled to see where you have done good things. Lord, I pray that you would just reveal your goodness to those folks this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.